Hello and welcome to the British Chambers podcast channel. We're delighted to bring you a second season of in-depth discussions and conversations with our members and high-profile speakers, ranging from topics like trade, fintech, arts, sports, and more within Singapore, ASEAN, and the UK. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy today's podcast. Welcome to our latest episode of In Conversation with me, David Kelly. Um, Well, what a treat we have in store today. I'm joined by a voice I am sure we will all recognise, the legendary award-winning Sky News anchor and reporter come author Jeremy Thompson. He's covered major stories, uh, often presenting on location with assignments including reporting from Rome in the Vatican City on the death and funeral of Pope John Paul II in April 2005, the London bombings of July 2005, um, the Hurricane Rita, um, the Asian tsunami, uh, where he was the first British presenter on the scene reporting live from Phuket on the immediate aftermath of the disaster. Jeremy has lived in Asia, Africa and the US, and he is the recipient of many awards, including the Royal Television Society's Award for Presenter of the Year in 2006. Jeremy, I feel truly humbled, excited and a little bit nervous um, to be talking to you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Good to be with you. And uh, I think just think of it as sitting in your front room watching the news, really, but being able to ask questions instead of just watching. Oh, absolutely, absolutely amazing. And you, you, are, you are the voice of, of, my, of my child and my upbringing as well. So that's, that's really amazing. So I guess, I mean, can we start from the beginning? What, what got you into journalism um, to begin with? What was, what, was the, what was the spark? What was the motivation? One of the few things I guess I was reasonably good at at school was writing essays, writing praises and so on. And I liked the idea. I liked the feel of writing. And I also discovered I was quite a, a nosy little sod as a kid and curious about things that asked a lot of questions. And it seemed to add up in my mind that journalism might not be a bad route. Unfortunately, my father, being of that sort of vintage, having been born around First World War time and gone to work in the uh, the Great Depression of the 1920s and whose only thought in his mind was that you should get a steady job, a job for life, get a pension, get a mortgage, be sensible, didn't think that me going and being a journalist was really a very good idea. He thought I ought to be a, a solicitor or insurance like him or a banker, and he poo-pooed the idea of me going to journalism. So I ended up going off and trying to be a chartered surveyor up in London for a while. And then I went and tried advertising. And eventually I thought, no, 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 this is silly. So I said, sorry, Dad, I'm going to give journalism a shot. So I got myself an apprenticeship, as you did in the 1960s, because that was kind of all there was around, really, and got a job on a local evening paper called the Cambridge Evening News. And I got a four-year apprenticeship. Um I also, it's it's an interesting reflection of those times compared with now. It's worth bearing in mind, when I looked it up when I was writing my book at the sort of tail end of my career and realised that whereas nowadays 50% of kids in Britain could expect to go to university, in the mid-1960s when I left school, 4% could expect to go to university. And there was actually not one single media degree in the whole, to be had in the whole of Great Britain. All I was offered was the very, an opportunity to be on the very first uh, one year uh, diploma course at Darlington Tech 
for the British Council of Training of Journalists. And I actually got a place on that, a one-year diploma course. And that was, in a way, the start of academic media and journalist courses in Britain. But luckily, the newspaper offered me a job, so I went there and got an apprenticeship and set out learning the trade of being a journalist, which was often brushing down the desks and doing the village paragraphs, the weddings, the funerals, and everything like that. I mean, it was it was real old-school stuff with big stand-up typewriters that used to hammer away on for hours and gruff news editors that would spike your story or rip them in half and send you back to do them again. So it was, you know, it was not quite Dickensian, but it was certainly old-school journalist training. Fabulous. And then how did you make the switch from sort of print journalism to sort of television? And, and, and was, it, was that an easy step? It was a step I hadn't expected to make because broadcasting was still relatively in its infancy in the 60s, and early 70s, and there wasn't that much around. I had hoped at best that I would go to Fleet Street and join a national paper once I'd done my apprenticeship and if I could prove my way. But then... Um, in the early late 60s, early 70s, there was a sudden expansion of local radio in Britain. BBC opened up local radio stations and commercial radio started soon afterwards. And a major of mine got a job at Radio Nottingham, a BBC station, gave me a ring one day and said, this is great, you ought to try this. I hear there's a job going at Sheffield. So I applied for a job at BBC Radio Sheffield and got it as a, as a reporter, producer. and suddenly made the big leap and it was a sideways leap in those days i mean really the idea of being in national broadcasting I mean, it was it was for those of us outside it it seemed a very small environment with pitifully small chance of getting in i mean national television national radio was a handful of people doing bbc and itv and that was it so these local radio stations which then turned to regional television stations, gave us a foothold, a chance to get in, and it opened broadcasting up to a whole new generation of young journalists who wouldn't have really had a hope of getting into, into broadcast journalism before. So I did local radio, and then somebody spotted me from regional television, Look North Leeds, and I managed to get a job up there. And eventually, I, they, the BBC in London decided its wisdom that it needed a national correspondent in the north of England. So it decided to have a BBC TV North of England correspondence job. And I got that in 1977 and became the first to do that and did that for several years, covering the whole of the north of England, but for the nine o'clock news on BBC. And from there, I jumped ship to ITN, where I got a job actually as chief sports correspondent, which was fun because I love sport, but I and I'd done it along the way as part of my training up as a young journalist, but I thought it was quite limiting, and I kind of liked the big news story. But I, when this job came up at ITN, I thought, why the hell not? Now, this sounds fun. And a lot of my friends were aghast and said, why, why are you going to ITN? News of 10? Why, why are you doing sport? And I sort of said with great bravado, oh, well, you know, check, me with, check with me at the end of the first year and, see if it's been worthwhile, and they all sniggered up their sleeves. Luckily, at the end of that first year, actually on New Year's Eve, I found myself uh, drinking champagne in a swimming pool overlooking Sydney Harbour in the middle of an Ashes cricket tour, which I spent 75 days away from the UK in Australia covering a test cricket tour. So a lot of them said, yeah, 
we get your point, not a bad job. So I did that for a few years. And was that the first sort of step into sort of international travel, really, with the job in terms of having to go and report on on, on, on the sports side of things? It was. Uh, this, you know, I could see the sport appealed to me, um, but also what I, because I was just basically a hard newsman at heart, everywhere I went, I tried to look out for news stories as well. So that trip in Australia, I did about 60 you know, 50 or 60 cricket stories, but I did about 20 news stories, you know, bushfires and, you know, all sorts of, you know, big news stories going on. So I'd send those back as well. So I wanted to persuade my bosses that I was a jack of all trades and could have a go at everything and anything. And therefore it was worth sending me. But that, those four or five years of sports correspondent were sensational. I, I covered two Olympic games, the Los Angeles and the Seoul Olympic Games. I covered cricket tours to Australia, the West Indies, to India, to Pakistan. Um, I went on rugby tours and uh, covered athletics and I went covered winter sports, everything. So, I mean, I got a good glimpse of the world and realised that being a journalist and travelling um, had a particular appeal to me. So I started looking out for the next job around. So travel, um, sports, um, lots of opportunity, great coverage over the two Olympic Games, as you mentioned. What, what, what was the next step after that? And why did you want to leave the uh, reporting on sports? Um, I could see the limitations of sport. I mean, as much as I love sport and I still love sport, as a news event, I mean, it, uh, as news events, it kind of limits you a little bit. So I... Suddenly spotted, ITM decided in its wisdom, the old News at 10 decided they really need an Asia correspondent. So they thought they ought to set up a bureau in Hong Kong. And I managed to persuade them that, uh, or win the board, to become the first correspondent. So I ended up in your neck of the woods uh, in 1986-87 as ITN's first Asia correspondent. and stood in Hong Kong and looked at the map that I'd put up on the wall and realised that it was a pretty big task I got ahead. I suddenly realised that I was covering everything from uh, the Khyber Pass in the west to Hokkaido in the east and from Ulaanbaatar in Outer Mongolia down to, um, well, Dunedin in New Zealand. And also, at the time, there was a bit of an industrial dispute going on with crews because the camera crews wanted to be sent out to be with me, and uh, ITN decided they, that was too expensive, so I was to work with local crews. So the blue, the, the, the Bureau was black for a while, industrial-wise, by the unions. So I ended up working with uh, local freelance uh, crews around the region. So I was quite often working in places I'd never been to before with stories that I barely understand in languages I couldn't speak with cameramen who couldn't speak my language. So it was quite a it was quite a big test, but eventually I got my own English-speaking camera crew and I had an, an amazing time traveling around Asia. And I, I loved being in Asia and had some great stories from India and Pakistan and Bangladesh down to Australia and New Zealand. There were coups in the Philippines. There were pro-democracy riots going on in South Korea. And then, of course, 1989, there was the extraordinary event of Tiananmen Square, which I ended up uh, covering for, you know, 
quite a number of weeks, which was a real eye-opener to a journalist. Um, it was difficult enough covering China anyway, difficult place. They never really wanted journalists there from outside poking their noses in. So they always made it difficult, but that was particularly tense and um, difficult to report on. And, of course, it ended in terrible tragedy as well, which we kind of foreseen coming in a way once we managed, we were among the first crews to get out to the outskirts of Beijing when we discovered tanks rolling into town, which hadn't been widely um, advertised by the Chinese Communist Party leadership, as you can imagine. And so we realized that they were pretty serious about crushing the descent of the students. And at the end of it, it was a it was a real reminder to me and other journalists, I suppose, that you know we often thought that by being there, you're kind of the defenders of the free world, and as long as we were there, nothing would happen to the students. And of course, that wasn't the way. Chinese uh, leadership didn't take any notice of what was being said in the outside world. They were determined to put an end to the uprising. And it was quite a humbling experience realizing that we, despite you know telling the students' story of their hopes of greater democracy in their country, of some sort of opening up, um, their hopes were crushed. And we were very humbled in realizing that we couldn't stop um, the leadership of that country from doing what they wanted to do. And it was quite an eye-opener, which I must say stayed with me through my career that, uh, you know, however powerful you think the free voice of the press is around the world, it doesn't necessarily stop things. It doesn't necessarily change things. I mean, it didn't stop me wanting to change things by bringing difficult stories to the attention of people around the world. But it's a reminder that, you know, you are not there solving people's problems. You're merely exposing the facts of a case to the public and hoping that the the wider world will do something about injustices as much as anything else. Obviously, obviously, a very, very important, very challenging time. You said it, sort of, you know, you, you think about it a lot. Um, you know, do you do you take situations where you're in Tiananmen Square, for example, home with you, and how do you deal with that? And also. You know, we come from a very different culture in the West, right? And, you know, when we get sort of plonked into areas and there's sort of, you know, political movement going on in a different country, how, how do you stay so neutral as well through that? So I guess sort of two questions in there. I guess I was just born and not a very political creature. And maybe um, one of the reasons I went into journalism was a sense of wanting to be fair and see justice done, I'd, you know, in a very small way. So I always went into things, into any story I did, with as open mind as I possibly could. I believe I always see two or more sides to arguments and and not as quite entrenched in my views as we find the world seems to be these days in the world of social media, where everybody appears to be in their own echo chamber shouting at each other. I always felt it was important for me and other, my fellow journalists to be fair and open about things and go in and try and gather the thoughts of all sides and not to make decisions about it, not really to comment on it, but the job being to be an eyewitness in a place that most people couldn't get to and offer up as fair and as balanced a picture of what was going on as possible so that others could make up their minds about what was going on. How you deal with it, I mean, I, I would always go into every situation like that 
um, with those thoughts in mind, with fairness, uh, impartiality, some sort of justice in mind. I must say, you know, I cover many stories where you were tugged by the enormity of all the horrors of what was going on in front of you. Um, but I just thought that there was no point being there, telling one one side story and not the other. You need to present balanced view, otherwise there's really no point in being there. How do you deal with that? You've just got to try and keep an open mind and keep some space between you and what's going in front of you. I, I've been on many stories where I've seen colleagues being inexorably drawn into stories. They couldn't help themselves but to be sucked into the emotion of a story. And I, you know, I know it's it's easy to for that to happen. And you really have to work quite hard to just keep a bit of distance, a bit of reality between you and what's going on so that you don't get drawn into it. Because there's no point, you know, I've seen enough death and dying around the world and enough, you know, horror and repression and suppression and natural disasters and and human-made disasters to realise that, it, you know, how that the emotions are very raw in those situations and it's very easy to get sucked into it. But if you do, I'm not sure you do justice to the people there. I'm not sure by getting too close to it and embracing one starving child, you help the cause of all those people in trying to tell the world that there's a lot of starving people or there's a lot of damaged people or there's a lot of problems that you need to be aware enough to tell their story for their, you know, for the greater good, you hope. Um, not always easy, but it, 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 I try to sort of keep it as, as focused and neutral and as independent as I could. How you deal with the the emotional side yourself, that's kind of difficult. I grew up, I suppose, in a different generation where, you know, my father's generation have come home from the Second World War and his father's generation had come home from the First World War and they kind of tucked it away in a corner and didn't really speak about it or went down to the pub with their mates and talked it through, but you didn't bring it home, you didn't really discuss it. I suppose I... I got a bit of that as I went along, and I'm of a generation where we kind of dealt with it. So if we'd had a tough time, um, we would probably go and have a couple of pints with your, with your colleagues and talk things through. Nowadays, it's much more uh, organisations that I would work for now would be much more medically and psychologically aware and offer much more counselling of how to how to deal with the things you'd seen. If you've been to war, it's not always easy to deal with it. Um, I'm lucky I seem to have come out of the other end, um, you know, reasonably intact, I hope, with, with no um, scarring or psychological damage. But I, again, I know colleagues who've been, who've had a difficult time dealing with what they've seen and others who've realised after one glimpse of, war or destruction or disaster or feast or famine, that it's not something that they found they could deal with and they were realised they were better sticking to uh, difficult, uh, to different subjects and perhaps staying away from those areas that really do or can mess with your heart, mess with your brain.
you've covered some some major world stories. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, is there one that that was particularly difficult for you to, to to either be there physically or to or to report on? Is there something that really sticks in your mind that goes, yeah, that was really really tough? Well, quite a few, really. I mean, I, if I think of the genocide in Rwanda in 1994, that was um, pretty testing uh, for any human beings involved in that. Um, the genocide was gruesome. We got glimpses of it. Um, and as the story evolved, I ended up on the Rwanda border in um, what was Zaire. It's now the DRC, um, but was Zaire with a million refugees piling over the border from that um, civil and internecine conflict between the, the Hutu um, and the Tutsi people. And so there were vast sort of impromptu refugees camps being set up. And those that hadn't, the million or so that, you know, had died in the country, there were another million or so that were pouring over the border to escape from it. Um, and in amongst them, some of the militias that had done some of the killing and the slaughter themselves. Um, so uh, now in civilian clothing, so it's quite hard to tell one from the other. But the the world of help was very slow to react. The United Nations, the other agencies struggled to cope with the scale of it, with the danger of it, with the enormity of that particular thing. So we ended up being, in a way, at the forefront of telling the story of Rwanda and the fallout from it as the refugees poured over the border. And if you'd imagine nearly a million people camped out with almost no help at all, traumatized by what they'd been through, and sitting in effect on what were a, what was a larval landscape below the volcanoes in that part of the world. Mm. Um, and having to set up camp there and try and survive with not a lot of help from the outside world for many weeks. The trouble is with hardened lava, as they discovered, there's nowhere to dig holes in the ground. And so, and there was not a lot of fresh water around. So needless to say, disease breaks out very quickly. Sanitation was non-existent, and non-existent medical aid at the start, very slow to come. And so, we saw literally thousands and thousands of people dying, partly from starvation, partly from cholera and other diseases, and watched and waited and kept putting out the story there, hoping that more international aid would come. But it was slow to organise. It was one of those occasions when you realise the world, uh, you know, however much power the Western world has got or the outer, you know, the bigger, the wider world has got, it doesn't always react well to um, crises around the world. It can be slow. It can be you know, mithered in red tape and, um, and bureaucracy and not swift to react and put money and people where it's needed. And it was small charity organisations we found that were most, most helpful trying to keep people alive. But it was pretty traumatic and there was still killing going on. Some of those militias were still taking it out on those they seemed, uh, you know, they believed were the opposing parties. So that was pretty grim. That time as well in Africa, I spent quite a lot of time in Somalia, which had become an almost non-state. It was ruled by 
warlords in the wake of the civil war, which had disintegrated really the country, had imploded. Um, there were vast amounts of weapons left in the Horn of Africa from the Cold War, the proxy wars that you know the Soviet Union and the United States and the West carried out in the Horn of Africa. So there were a lot of lawless people with an awful lot of weapons and using food aid and poor people as weapons, as tools, uh, and uh, again, seeing huge amounts of starvation, of poverty, of unnecessary death. Um, again, hard to deal with, and, but few people had been in there to tell the story. It was hard to get in. It was dangerous to get in. Um, and it felt like it, it was, you know, it was one of those, I must say, got to me that it was another place that it felt somebody needs to go there and shine a light on this. Otherwise, there's never going to be any help from outside. And I mean, Somalia is still a bit of a mess, mess to this day, quarter of a century later, sadly. But at least people became aware. Now, I mean, we sort of, in our dark journalist humor, used to joke that um, the reason that the Americans came was basically us. I persuaded my colleague from one of the American networks who I shared an office with in Johannesburg to come along with me to see this story. And it takes six months for him to persuade his, Ameri his editors in America that it was even a story worth bothering with. They, they cared that little about it and were unaware of it. And I finally persuaded him to come along and he did a story. And it was said that George Bush Sr., who was in the White House at the time, was so shocked by the pictures out of Mogadishu and Somalia that he began planning that intervention by the American troops at the, uh, at the end of that year, which was 91 into 92. Um, and uh, as a result, um, Americans got themselves involved in there and, you know, you saw one of the side effects of that, which was portrayed in the movie Black Hawk Down. I mean, it was pretty awful. And the American Clinton pulled them out fairly soon afterwards. So that was another ill-fated intervention. But we kind of jokingly, in a black-humoured sort of way, used to say that, well, I guess we were responsible for getting the Americans involved by telling the story. But at least we told the story and people can make up their minds how they want to treat it and what they want to do about it. Hopefully, some lives were saved in the end because aid did arrive, and you know, lives were made marginally better. But sometimes it's a tough call. Did Did you ever think at the time the impact that your reporting on these stories globally was having on the wider world in terms of um, opening up the world and their eyes? I mean, you just mentioned about you know having the Americans involved and. and you know, did you ever think at the time this is having a, a really positive impact that I'm, I'm here to do my job, but it's important that I'm amplifying this news to, to a wider population? Was that something that sort of really inspired you? Um, not inspired me, but I mean, you feel it's part of the job to try and get the word out there about places that sometimes don't get much attention or get ignored by the world. I mean, you know. It's human nature to brush difficult things under the carpet. There's no doubt the world does it um, as much as we do individually at home. So to go into places that have been ignored, that have had a lack of attention, to try and bring attention to it in the hope that it'll do some good. Um, yeah, I mean, that's certainly one of the things in your mind. I mean, you don't 
didn't I didn't set out to do journalism or to go to any particular story thinking I'm going to change the world, but at least going out thinking I'll try and make a difference if I can. But basically, I see myself as a as a storyteller. So I used to say to youngsters who came into the business would say, "Well, what are you?" How do you see the job? And I said, well, if you think back to the Middle Ages, I guess I'm like the town crier. You know, I wear a bright coloured red coat and I have a bell and a tricornered hat and I march into the local square and I ring the bell and say, oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay, roll up. I've got some news to tell you. And in a, in a way, that's what it is. You're trying to You're trying to tell stories that people want to listen to or should be interested in. And sometimes they don't know they want to be interested in, but if you go there and tell them about it in a compelling enough way, I hope they will become interested and therefore people will want to change things if they see things are wrong there and they see injustices. And that will increase the pressure to bring about change for the better. But I say I'm not a missionary, I'm just a journalist and hoping to make a bit of a difference from time to time. So from the outdoor journalist um, on the ground, seeing what's going on to the studio, how did, how did that transition happen and, and, and why? Oh, very reluctantly. I didn't really want to come indoors at all. Um, I covered the whole of Asia. I covered the whole of Africa. And then I was asked to go and set up. I, I by, by the time I was in Africa, I jumped ship from ITN to a new 24-hour channel called Sky News, um, which had only really come on the scene at the end of the 80s, early 90s. And um, most of my friends, again, thought I was nuts for going to this untried and untested outfit that uh, they thought would never survive. But I liked the idea, and uh, I'd done stuff through ITN for CNN. There was a relationship there. So I'd done some rolling news over the years through ITN for for CNN. So I, I realised how it worked. I liked the idea of being able to report round the clock rather than just one set-piece bulletin at the end of each day, which seemed to me a bit old-fashioned. So I jumped ship to Sky whilst I was in Africa, based in South Africa. Maybe we'll go back to that because that's sort of Africa is sort of one of the most memorable bits of my career, particularly South Africa and Mandela. But uh, but uh, at the end of the stint there, I was asked to go and set up Sky's first bureau in America. So I set up in Washington, D.C. in 95 and um, covered that for about three or four years. And uh, by this time, an old mate of mine had become, who I'd worked with at ITN, had become the boss of Sky News. And he rang me up one day and said, um, I want you to come back and start anchoring the evening news at Sky. Do you fancy it? I, was, um, I didn't say, no, I don't, but I, I said, give me a few minutes to think about it. Um, and I was quite reluctant, really, because I enjoy being in the field. And I, my first love is reporting and telling stories and making those packages, the, <clears throat> those package stories that you would see on the evening news bulletin. Um, but I realised that I was probably running, having had three good big foreign bureaus and had some great stories, I was probably running out of foreign bureaus. Uh, and so I, I said to uh, the boss, I said, OK, I'll come back, but how about this? I, it would be a shame to waste 
my skills, my experience as an on-the-road reporter. So can we think of a way that when the need arises on a big story, we can take that story out of the road with me as a presenter? And so we kind of hatched a plan that we'd have a go at that. So it hadn't really been done before. Reporters and correspondents had always been out the road, but very rarely anchormen. Um, and so we developed that idea during the late 90s um, to hopefully good extent, to, to an extent that it helped to change the way that the TV news media did look at stories and other networks soon followed. Um, one of the perhaps real um, sea change moments was Kosovo in the Balkans. I'd been covering the war in Kosovo on and off since the early 90s. I'd been one of the first in there when it had erupted and been in Croatia and uh, Slovenia and Bosnia. Um, so by 99, of course, the atrocities were going on in Kosovo. It would be very difficult for outside forces to get in. Eventually, um, a NATO force was put together to form a, an intervention, a liberation, if you like. And um, we hatched a plan to drive some old satellite trucks, our mobile trucks, down from London across Europe, and secrete them in garages on the border. And when the moment arose that we wouldn't join the pool of, you know, reporters who were told where to go by the military, we'd actually just head in. So literally when the first British troops crossed the border, we were a few yards behind them with a satellite truck and I was up within a few minutes and broadcasting the liberation of Kosovo from inside Kosovo, the first live pictures we'd really had inside there. We had two little vans with satellite links and we let we leapfrogged up the road to Pristina, the capital, uh, throughout that first day with non-stop coverage from basically inside a war zone. Um, and we found <laughs> signs of the atrocities that have been carried out there. We met random units from the Kosovo Liberation Army. We found booby traps and bombs and graveyards where the victims of massacres have been buried and uh, we got shot at and eventually we got to Pristina. But it was, a, it was a kind of world first. It was the first time anybody had attempted something quite as mobile as that with presenter in the field actually taking viewers on a journey, on a story as it unfolded. And um, so that was a breakthrough moment, I think, in breaking news, which uh, Sky very much coined during the 90s. And it opened the door for a lot more of that. And I mean, by 2003 and the second Iraq war, I'd covered the first Iraq war. Um, by the second one, I was straight in at the beginning of the invasion or the liberation um, of Kuwait and then of, of Iraq. And we went in again with the satellite truck and broadcast live every day for a month and drove across the desert from the Kuwaiti border and Basra right the way up to Baghdad, arriving there the day that Saddam's statue was pulled down. So again, that was fairly hairy. And the first time I'd actually halfway through that 
Sky finally decided we really did need some um, military or former military uh, security aid help. So I had a couple of former SAS troopers with me, unarmed, I should say, but giving us security advice and trying to keep us out of trouble. Though they admitted that, although they, during the first Gulf War, both of them had been in the desert as SAS troops, um, hidden in the desert, uh, guiding in bombers into Baghdad on the... They said coming with us, it was way more fun and we were much crazier than they were. And we actually drove into Baghdad during, you know, during all this mayhem, which they would not have been allowed to do as SAS troops. So they thought we were great. So they uh, they liked coming on for the, the ride. And they, But I insisted they weren't armed because I felt, and I still feel at the moment, that you as a journalist carry arms or you have arms with you, you become are seen as combatants, and that's a very dangerous line to cross. And a lot of, yeah, some cases, it's been almost inevitable that, and unavoidable that journalists have had armed security with them. But it means that I've discovered in the last couple of decades or so that journalists are much, much less reverentially treated uh, or decently treated by combatants and often seen, as I saw during the the, um, the Balkan War, <clears throat> they're seen as combatants. You know, they're, it's kind of, if you're not on our side, you must be against us. I don't care if you're a journalist or not. So we, we became, we discovered much more fair game, much more of a target, as we've seen. And an awful lot of journalists, an awful lot of people I know have been wounded or killed you know, in the last 20 or 30 years, it's, it's become probably more and more dangerous to cover conflict. So, so sitting behind the desk is, is is much safer as an anchor? Much safer. It's a bit more boring, though. But, I mean, but a lot of kids come into the business now, now that media, the media is um, seen as fashionable, which it wasn't in my day. I mean, I remember my dad saying, man, I said, I want to be a journalist. He said, he was in insurance. He said, son, there's only... There's only one category of people in this country that are a bigger risk, bigger insurance risk than journalists, and that's jazz musicians. <laughs> so, so he really saw, you know, we were really seen as sort of trilby hats with press sticking out and dirty old gabardine Max rather than the suave, trendy media of the uh, 21st century where it's a very trendy and cool thing to do, where every other kid that used to come in and have a trip around the newsroom would say, I want to do your job. You know, how do you get where you are? And I'd say, glibly, oh, well, it only took me about 30 years to learn my trade before I started presenting. And they, and if you ask them what they want to do, no, no, we just want to be on telly. We just want to be a presenter. But they want to be a presenter for presenters' sake, not, not because there were journalists who were presenting the news. But anyway, that's just evolution, I guess. <laughs> Go on, let us into a secret. Is it is it really easy reading an auto cue? Well, the great joy I found of 24-hour news, rolling news, and having, you know, as I did quite often, three or four hours on air on a normal day, or if I went out the field 24 hours a day or 16 or 18 hours a day, is that very, very little of that's on an auto cue. So that's when the journalist experience comes into play, when you are genuinely absorbing what's going on around you and passing it on to people. So you really are the middleman. You really are the eyewitness telling people where they are and what's going on. 
and having enough of the detail and the background of it to better, you know, give them an informed view of what's happening and why it's happening and how it's happening and so on. Um, <clears throat> and I was also in the studio, because on the day of 9-11, uh, so although I was in the studio, I can't say very much was on teleprompter or auto cue that day. <laughs> that was quite extraordinary. I think I spent <clears throat> eight solid hours in the studio trying not to do what the rest of the world was doing, which was sitting there with my mouth agape in disbelief and trying to talk people through <clears throat> pictures of the of the unbelievable, of the impossible. Um, and trying to feed in what facts we were getting to balance out what we were seeing. But I was seeing most of it at the same time as the viewer, but trying to help them, guide them through it. Um, so that was a pretty testing day. So, yeah, there were, there were quite a few days when it's just, you know, pretty standard day and there's no breaking news and you are just reading auto cue and... I guess the art is to try and make auto cue seem like you're not really auto cue and still be chatting to people. And somebody told me a long time ago, you know, forget the fact there's a million people out there watching. Just think of your granny sitting in front of a telly in a chair two yards away from you and tell her a story. Tell your gran a story. You know, don't think of a million people out there. So being, you know, on telly as a reporter or correspondent or an anchorman or whatever. It was at any level, it's about informing people in a way that is accessible and doesn't put up barriers between people so that you can get over your story and you can tell it in a an in interesting and compelling way. Because in the end, what you want to do is for people to carry on watching, for people to still be engaged in the story you're telling them or the stories you're telling them about. So, you know, it's a, it's, I see it as a fairly simple process. And the best thing to get rid of, first and foremost, is ego, really. I mean, I know a lot of people have gone into it because they thought they were, you know, rather special and rather important. And I don't think that actually helps viewers. You want to level with viewers. I mean, I, I always found one of the most important things was if, particularly on live television, rolling television, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes pretty much every day. Well, say sorry. Tell people, I'm sorry, it's a mistake. You know, don't try and cover up. Don't try and hide because you won't forever. You know, so level with people, be square. Um, people have got to trust you. So they've got to trust that you'll tell them, as fair and square as you can what's going on in the world, that you're going to tell them the truth, and occasionally you might stumble and make a mistake and level with them and tell them where you've gone wrong and put it right as soon as possible. But don't try and be somebody you're not on air. It's about being yourself and looking people square in the eyes and telling them what's going on. Um, in, at its simplest, that's what it's about. Yeah, and you're in everybody's living room. I, I still remember your last broadcast I think with Sky and I think I think you said and I might, I might get this wrong so please correct me but I remember you saying how you wanted to be transparent and unvarnished I think was the phrase you used at the end which I thought was was great in terms of just providing the actual facts to everybody in their living room and it was almost a it was it's a phrase that's always stuck with me um just in terms of providing that that neutral news it was a, it was it was a bit of a moment if it's a good strong story you don't need to dress it up you don't need to varnish it you don't need to lacquer it um just tell it straight. Tell it as well as you can. 
use your words, don't um and ah, <laughs> try to be square with people and trust them. The, you know, one of the old-fashioned thoughts is that, you know, you're better than the viewer. I, I kind of used to come across a bit, I think, in old-fashioned bulletins where it was rather didactic. People would lecture you about the news, whereas really I'm just one of you, the viewer, who happens to be the person that's where it's happening. So I'm telling you, like a mate, so do tell it like you would to your family or friends. So don't dress it up. You know, I, I was also very aware of not hiding stuff too much. I mean, there's always been a bit of a danger that, you know, you don't tell people about the nasty bits. Well, we've got a bit squeamish, certainly in British television, about showing death and destruction and the horrible things that go on. But I think there's a great danger that if you don't show people the reality, you don't have to show them every last horror, but if you don't show people reality, what are you doing? I mean, you're kind of presenting a video game if you're not careful. Um, you know, war happens. When war happens, it's nasty and people get hurt. There's no point in pretending people that they don't. So, you know, I, I would always fight the battle to have on as much of the, real, the reality of what was going on around me as I could. But it became a tougher and tougher battle Teddy's got a bit more sanitized, I think, in recent years in what it says and what it shows, certainly in the UK. Other countries around the world show more stuff than I'd ever dreamed of showing. I tried to sort of at least keep it within bounds so people wouldn't look away from the screen too often. But, you know, if you turn on a news bulletin and hear about some of the stuff going around the world, you should be ready to face the fact that it's not all nice. I mean, people will always go, why can't you just have a good news program? Well, in the end, people won't just listen to good news because the stuff that really gets them going is the stuff that's not good news, <laughs> you know, the stuff that's controversial news, the difficult news, the horrible news. Um, you know, we are drawn like moths to a light to, you know, crises and human disasters and controversies and people falling out and nations falling out and natural disasters and volcanoes going off and earthquakes we're drawn to it you know it's uh, it's just human nature so i happen to be one of those people that was out there telling them about it telling them as best i could amazing yeah you you've, you've seen sort of journalism change you know throughout your career um and I think a big, big part of that certainly that sort of I, I, I grew up with, you know, sort of, uh, you know, in the latter part of, of sort of coming out of university was social media, which had a massive impact in terms of the way that I consumed information. Um, I'm really keen just to get your thoughts on, on, on the impact of the internet, on the impact of real time news around, you know, the, and the social media channels. And does that, does that, does that have a positive, negative, different impact on, on journalism? Certainly has a different impact. I would, I still think um, a lot of it is very negative, and it's unfolded into what we've seen as now the age of fake news. Um, a lot of that, thanks to Trump. What I think is that the internet 
and social media on the internet has kind of weaponized information or misinformation. And I see them both going alongside each other. It's weaponized. It comes at you at warp speed. It's very hard to dissect the truth from the fake, the good, you know, the real news, the fair and impartial news from the partial and fake news or twisted news or um, disinformation campaigns that are going on. So it is becoming harder. And I think it means that the challenge for the next generation who's followed me into journalism to mainstream journalism is even bigger than it's ever been. The challenge is to make people or to persuade people to trust genuine mainstream truthful, fair, impartial news uh, so that they will listen to all arguments. There's a problem, I think, with the internet has allowed echo chambers to happen. It's allowed people to be polarized. People listen to the news they want that suits them, that fits their, fits them. Uh, they go for tailor-fitted news outfits. Um, this feels good to me. This is my argument. I like this. I'll only listen to this. Mm. They don't, they're not, they haven't, a lot of people don't have the openness of mind that perhaps we were all brought up with, where you listen to a news bulletin or you read newspapers or you read news magazines, listen to the radio, and tried to glean views from all sides and then make up your own mind. Now people make up their own mind and then only really. Um, feed that with the information that suits them, and that's that's going to be that's going to continue as long as the internet and social media is about and remains uncontrolled. Um, and it can be very insidious, and I think it can be very unpleasant. And a lot of the hate campaigns that you read about in the papers and hear on television every day are going to. You know, perpetuate because people are allowed to be anonymous. Um, they're allowed to say what they like. There's no restraint on them with the with the social media outfits. Um, and as I wrote in my book, I think uh, after covering the first Trump election campaign in America, that um, facts were left like roadkill on the information superhighway. Um, you know, sadly, uh, facts were left for dead. And a lie, as one great author said, you know, you can travel around the world twice times before the truth's even got its boots on. So it's hard to undo lies and um, conspiracy theories and misinformation and disinformation. It's being manufactured in all parts of the world for various reasons and various campaigns. And there, you know, the lies and misinformation is hard to untangle. It's very hard to sit in front of a camera and untangle the mess that's been made by others. So it is a it's a it's a crossroads, I think, in our in our history as human beings, but in the reportage of the world around us and how we consume news and what we consume. Um, and, you know, getting the truth out there 
the unvarnished truth is becoming, I think, more and more difficult. Although the access is easier and easier because of the internet, it's harder and harder to know what to believe and not what um, what not to believe. Yeah, it's quite it's quite challenging. It's almost perception becomes reality in some cases, mm-hmm. and that, that can have some very very interesting very interesting effects, as you mentioned. Um, with some key key events that were going on around the world, certainly in the last sort of four or five years, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've got, got I'm quite keen just to, um, I, I, to sort of ask you some four four quick questions. Um, I, I want to sort of know, know what your most memorable moment is, what your proudest moment is, your funniest moment, and your greatest achievement. So, can we can we start with your most memorable moment? You talked about the Mandela days and being in South Africa as being memorable. Have you was that the most memorable time for you? I think all four questions roll into one answer, which was South Africa in the early 90s. Um, <clears throat> I was lucky enough to go there when I was covering sport and cover one of those rebel cricket tours in 1982 when I'd just started out as uh, at ITN as a sports journalist. So I knew what I'd got a taste of what apartheid in South Africa was like, how it worked and how it looked. And it you know, wasn't a very pleasant sight. So I'd always itched to get back there. And I was lucky that I went back and spent the first half of the 90s in South Africa. I covered Mandela coming out of jail from Lusaka in Zambia, where the ANC, his party's government in exile, was banished to. So I spent it with the people who were now hoping that he would make a difference. And I saw what difference he did make as he made that long walk to freedom from a prisoner of 27 years in various jails in South Africa, including Robin Island, all the way through to that day in 19, May 1994, when he became president of a united South Africa, or not a united, but at least a, 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 a South Africa that had allowed a mix of colour for the first time. The first time. I remember the emotional moments of being in big townships like Soweto and watching black people vote for the very first time. Old people, 70 and 80-year-olds, making very slow progress up to a polling booth with tears in their eyes and saying, do you realise we've waited our entire lives to be able to do this? Something that I just take for granted. We all in the West just take for granted. We can go vote. And most, half of us don't even bother. We're too complacent to go and vote. And these people had spent a lifetime just dreaming of a chance to vote and have a say in their own society. And at those five years in South Africa watching this process happen, watching Mandela and getting to know Mandela pretty well, um, and seeing this transformation, this huge struggle to end apartheid and try and bring about a multiracial nation and a, and a free democracy was, you know, I'm an extraordinary privilege to cover a story like that. Um, as a kid, I'd grown up thinking there were three immovable objects in the world. The Cold War would never end. The troubles in Northern Ireland would never end and apartheid would never end. So to see the Berlin Wall coming down to see the end of the troubles in Northern Ireland and also witness the end of apartheid in South Africa. I see us being 
a fantastic privilege to have been able to report that, bring that home. And Mandela, I remember a couple of occasions saying to me, you mustn't underestimate the part that people like you have played in this. He said, without the Western media coming here and being bold and brave enough to question apartheid and raise the question of apartheid and make that story, to keep that story alive in the outside world year in, year out, is one of the most important reasons we're here today, that I got released from jail and I was able to lead the country out of apartheid. And so it, it does, it is one of those cases where, you know, the media has played a role in helping to change things. I mean, it was the, in the end, it was the, the courage and the bravery of the people in South Africa themselves to bring about change, but to feel that we as the media had helped play a part to contribute is, is certainly worth bearing in mind. And he was by, by no shadow of doubt, the most impressive man I'd ever met in my life. Uh, an extraordinary character. And so from the first day he met me, to for him to remember my name. So every time I'd see him or go for an interview or walk into a press conference, he'd go, oh, good morning, Jeremy. How are you? You know, how nice to see you. How's your family? Uh, so an extraordinary man, extraordinary powerful man, a carried, unbelievably charismatic man, but also a very humble man who hadn't forgotten his roots in rural South Africa and being good to people and being thoughtful to people and acknowledging people and uh, realizing their part in the world around him. So it was an amazing, an amazing four years. And it culminated, I guess, in being at the union buildings in Pretoria, the old uh, administrative capital in May 1994, waiting with heads of state from all around the world with thousands spilling out onto the, the grass banks below the union buildings as we built up to the moment where Mandela would be inaugurated as the first black president of South Africa. And we are going live on Sky News <clears throat> and um, I'm building up the atmosphere and I'm talking to Bob, our old anchor in London, who's a, who's a great character um, who always had a bit of a wicked smile and a quirk about him and liked to test us young reporters in the field. And it came to a moment where just before Mandela was about to make his Rainbow Nation speech, the Zulu, um, the Kuza praise singer, which is a traditional singer who's wearing the old um, skins of the wild animals and wearing a headdress and carrying an assegai and is singing or saying and singing poems of praise to the new leader. And the praise singer is very animated and is running around the big circle in front of the stage there. And Bob, the anchor in London, says, so, Jeremy, tell us what he's saying. And I knew no cosa whatsoever, or cosa, as they say, the, uh, the, click, the click language of South Africa. So not to be outdone, I <laughs> said, well, Bob, that's interesting. I, I said, um, my cousin isn't up to much at the moment. I'm still trying to learn it. He said, my understanding is he's saying that uh, Nelson Mandela, Nelson Mandela is a, is a supreme leader, an, an amazing man, 
uh, and a man who will change South Africa. Um, and Bob said, is that all he said? He said, I said, no, no, he's also saying that um, when he's uh, not helping inaugurate new presidents, he, he always likes to catch his news on Sky News, and he's a big follower of yours, Bob. Of which there was a bit of a chuckle from the other end, and he shut up and left me to it. But um, yeah, <laughs> one of those moments. So yeah, it was one of the one of those funny ones you get away with sometimes. And a few minutes later, Mandela made the Rainbow Nation speech, which uh, most people will remember fondly. And um, uh, I, <laughs> they wanted me to go out in a bureau in, in the states pretty much after that. I said, no, no, I want to stay on for the Rugby World Cup because I'm a big rugby fan. But it also was, in a way, another high point because the Rugby World Cup with Mandela handing over the trophy to South African captain Francois Pina, who's since become a big chum of mine, um, was another extraordinary moment where, for the first time ever, I think most of black South Africa embraced rugby, which had always been a symbol of white Africans' dominance, which they, you know, um, reviled for decades. But for the first time, black and white who didn't know each other were embracing in the streets after that. And in a way, it was the sort of the social culmination, I suppose, of what had happened during those five years since Mandela got out of jail. But for many reasons, I felt that reporting that was one of my proudest things, reporting those five years, meeting Mandela and getting to know him, being involved in the extraordinary ups and downs, the skirmishes, the civil conflict that had gone on, and to finally see a positive outcome of that um, was a great privilege and a fantastic story to cover. Uh, with some funny moments like that one at the Union Building. So um, it pretty much wraps up all of it, I think. Uh, I think one other instance that <clears throat> I remember very fondly of recent years, which was the inauguration of Barack Obama as the first black president of America. I was there live on the mall in front of the Capitol buildings in uh, uh, on the 20th of January 2009 when he was inaugurated and literally a million people or more were there on a, the chilliest, most frozen day you could ever imagine. And I can remember um, somebody running through the crowd and seeing me standing on my little platform broadcasting, coming over and, uh, and saying, oh, Jeremy, Jeremy, uh, how good to see you here. And I recognised the Southern African voice and I said, where are you from? And he said, I'm from Zimbabwe. And I said, what are you doing here? He said, I've come here just for this moment, just for this moment. I have flown here with my friends to see a black man made president of the United States. So another moment a bit like that I felt was quite close to that Mandela moment in South Africa. Another moment that, you know, you really stops you in your tracks and realising you're watching history unfold which is an amazing thing. Oh, amazing. Um, absolutely amazing. Last, last couple of questions, I guess. So, you, I mean, you've got a lot, a lot, it's, this has been such an amazing conversation and the detail you've got into with some, some of the stories is incredible. Yeah, presumably this is all in your book as well, breaking, called Breaking News, which I'm, I'm very much looking forward to, to picking up and having a good old read of, Jeremy. I really, really am. How, how on earth did you manage to remember everything throughout your career? Was it a case of going through your passport and looking at your stamps and the dates or is it, is it triggering or how did you I'll manage you, to 
Well, I, the, the, the book is basically the things I can remember. There's probably another book out there of things I've forgotten. <laughs> so um, I sat down um, when I sort of retired from the front line of news and basically I wrote the biggest stories and my favourite stories first and then I went back and the things that I needed to look up more, um, I, I wrote in after that. Uh, I'd always kept diaries, but strangely enough, diaries that, you know, are not exactly what you do in your life, but they were more working diaries. So appointments, things, stories you covered, the people you interviewed, taxis you took, meals you claimed for on expenses, flights you took. So actually, when I went back through all that, it gave me a framework of where I'd been. So it reminded me of a few places I'd been and the dates that helped. And then stories slowly started slipping into place. So things that I'd almost forgotten, I got my memory jogged by. So it was an intriguing process to go back through your entire working life, really, and try and piece it together. And it's a good process. It was quite a cathartic experience in giving me a bit of distance from the front line of news and making me just go back over it. And um, I realised above all else that uh, how lucky I'd be. I mean, we can't all say, unfortunately, that we've all gone out and worked for a lifetime and been incredibly lucky. And I had. I'd done something I loved doing. I'd been to some amazing places. I'd met some extraordinary people. I'd covered some incredible stories. I'd been to 150 countries, pretty much every corner of the world, and reported on some of the greatest dramas and stories and tragedies and crises and up moments and highlights of the last 50 years. And I'd look back on it with precious little regret. And I sat down and thought, at the end of it all, the end of the process, the end of my career and the end of the process of writing a book, what a lucky bloke you'd be. What a lucky man to have done all that and enjoyed it and not really to have had any great regrets. And if along the way you informed people, made people a little bit wiser, <clears throat> um, and made a slight difference, well, that would be great too. But above all else, from a purely selfish point of view, I had a great time and had an enormously fulfilling time. So, lucky man. There's a, there's a question we ask all of our, all of our guests, if I may, mm -hmm. and that's, if we could um, offer you the British Chamber of Commerce Singapore's time machine, um, and you can transport yourself to a point in your life where you could offer your younger self some advice of what you know now. Um, what advice would you give yourself and, and when would that be in your, in your career? I think fairly early days, you tend to sort of charge around and blunder into everything and think you know everything when you don't. <clears throat> I learned much later in life, there's quite a simple thing. Somebody once pointed out to me that we have two eyes and two ears and one mouth. And the reason for that is that what you should be doing is looking twice as much and listening twice as much as you do talk. 
So listen and watch two times as often as you speak, and then you'll be a wiser person and you will speak only after you've informed yourself. And I would say that to myself as a younger person, probably when I was still charging around on local newspapers and local radio and local telly, thinking that I knew everything and uh, was a was a brilliant young journalist. And uh, if I told myself to just stop, look and listen before you speak, that would always be a very useful piece of advice. What did you think when the film Anchorman came out? Did you look at it and go, oh, no, this is putting on a... This is putting on a bad view for journalists with Ron Burgundy. No, I mean it was so it was so far over the top <laughs> that it it didn't really matter. It was just a bit of fun. There are quite a lot where they the serious films where they try to portray journalists and anchormen, and and they do it so badly. It's so cliche. You just wince and think, yeah, it doesn't doesn't do the cause much good at all. Um, <laughs> But then talking of films, I mean, you never asked me about films like Shaun of the Dead, of course, which was, uh, there are still kids who come up and say to me, um, oh, you're that bloke in Shaun of the Dead, aren't you? And they said, go on, say that line. You say, well, in case of emergency, the assailants can be stopped by removing their heads or destroying their brains. And kids just think it's brilliant. And then quite a lot will say, so what else do you do? So, well, I'm, I'm actually a journalist and an anchorman. Oh, right, didn't know that. Just saw you in Shaun of the Dead. So, yes, for, for a lot of people's highlights, um, hi there, <laughs> is uh, Shaun of the Dead was, the, um, was one of the highlights of my career as far as a lot of people are concerned. Is there anything you wish... Well, well there's obviously been a lot of news over the last four or five years, right? Um, is there anything that or three or four years is there anything that you wish you were reporting on now because it's piqued your interest or I mean the whole Trump piece in America is just to me is extraordinary having seen that transition into the Biden Biden era Brexit's been in, just incredible watching that journey unfold you know Myanmar more recently in terms of the uh, the military coup there's, there's there's a lot going on in the world at the moment as well there always is but is there something you go oh, I wish I was wish I was still reporting on this since I stepped back from the from since I stepped back from presenting the news, I guess my main thought was, "Phew, what a relief! I didn't have to cover Brexit. It's just an awful, awful, dull story that would have driven me mad." I'm an out in the field, out and about cowboy kind of journalist. That Brexit would have done my head in. COVID probably would have done as well, unless I'd have been allowed out into some hospital wearing full PPE gear and been allowed to report from the front line. I covered six US presidential elections in a row, and I would have been fascinated to cover this latest election and the invasion of Capitol Hill afterwards. Um, And Perhaps to have seen the end of Trump would have been quite intriguing and to see whether he stays out of it or whether he can't resist coming back in. I think the ego will never quite land until he's had another go. So it would have been intriguing to cover that. Um, Yeah, there's a few stories around the world, but uh, there are a few that I'm relieved not to have had to do as well. 
Jeremy, what an absolute pleasure to have talked to you today. Um, and uh, amazing to hear your experiences through your career. Thank you for sharing so much with us. It really is a privilege to have, you know, from having seen you in my living room um, over a number of years to being able to talk to you today. I'm, I'm so delighted you've been able to afford the time. And thank you. Thank you to Sabina as well within my team for reaching out to you. It's been really, really, it's been a brilliant, brilliant discussion. Thank you so, so much. Good. My pleasure. I'm Hope it's uh, hope it's interesting. I hope it's uh, informative, and I hope somebody might learn something from it along the way. You never know. But uh, <laughs> very good to speak to you. Thank you for listening to our podcast and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, don't forget to subscribe and rate our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google and all other podcast platforms. For more information about the Chamber, please visit www.britcham.org.sg.